brokenhearted as well. And so uh, I looked within my own faith for a context where I could actually experience something that maybe I could call cessation, where I wasn't making anything, where I wasn't asking for anything, where I wasn't thanking, where there was a kind of uh, simplicity and openness, um, steadiness and stability. Uh, it wasn't the fanciness of Buddhism, the fancy part of Buddhism that attracted me. It was actually the hermetic practice, the practice of being in solitude, in silence, and um, taking time for living in a very simple way. I, I felt that I needed to restore myself, to refresh myself beyond language, beyond um, faith, belief, dogma, uh, theology. And um, it's what I do actually every day. Uh, included in a very busy life, uh, every day I stop for several hours. And I sit still in silence. And um, I do that sometimes by myself or sometimes I do it with others. And I get a kind of a dose of my mind actually when I'm doing it. How um, busy it is upstairs, how I'm constantly conceptualizing. And every once in a while, the mind stops producing its secretion called thought. And I have a moment where something happens, but the minute I note it, it disappears. However, I think that maybe you would call it, um, I feel the presence of God. Something that is beyond conception, that is um, very uh, indescribable. But of course, I always, if I say God or Buddha nature, it just flies out like a, you know, a pigeon just going away. Well, that has helped me quite a bit with my life. Um, it also has brought me, um, as a daily practice, very much in touch with the transitory nature of existence. I mean, I, I really, someone asked me recently, what is your North Star? What is the unmovable peace in your life? And I couldn't say God, I said something else. It just came right out of my mouth, and I, you all won't like it probably, but I said, death. And I realized that my pole star was not death in the sort of physiological sense, but change. Coming to, to terms with how precious this existence is, that this is it right now, how short our lives are. So your so your answer to the question is, if I understand you, is is that your your religious experience, your practice of Buddhism, has informed your appreciation of the moment. Of Not only of the moment, but also of others. Of others. All right. Uh, it's this incredible sense of appreciation for life itself, and even working as I do with people who are dying, and also working in maximum security. You know, with men who have murdered others, molested others, raped others, men who are in for life plus. Sounds like you belong to the Democratic Party. Hey. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Aren't you a fan I of democracy, darling? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I also belong to the Republic Party. Right. And, and Republican but Party. But Professor Nas was trying to get in there. Was it to her, to Joan's uh, point, or to Mr. Buckley's question about the seductiveness of other gods? I want to address myself to both. But let me, first of all, what she said, what she just said, Joan said, uh, displays precisely what I mentioned, that is, you have really a single 
drama written in several languages. Everything that she said would pertain to me as a Muslim. I pray five times a day. That breaks in a systematic fashion this daydreaming which we call life and faces you face to face with the transcendent, with the infinite reality. And what do you mean by pray? You pray five times a you, day. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, first of all, you've seen how wonderful it's misconstrued on television and by Hollywood, so you know what it physically looks like. Uh, but it, in the sense that you, first of all, make an outward ablution. You stand before God. There is no uh, intermediary. You stand, so you act as the priest, as the rabbi, as the Brahmin before the divinity. You are your own intermediary with God. And you try to move beyond all of the effects of time and space and materiality and corporeality and the ideas that come into your head and to, to try to address the divine in the name of not only yourself but the whole of creation because all of the statements in Arabic from the Quran which are mentioned in the daily prayers are in the plural. All the verbs are in the plural and not the singular. So it is not a singular prayer. It's the prayer that we perform on behalf of all of creation before God. Now, whether we succeed or not, it's extremely difficult. One can read about religion a thousand years, but one cannot concentrate 30 seconds and just looking at one's finger. That's very, very difficult. So one's, one's mind begins to go astray if one is not well trained. But nevertheless, it's a constant washing of not only the body and not only the psyche, but also the mind, and bring it back, bringing it back to its primordial norm, how we were created at the beginning. It brings it back, if I use a Buddhist term, to its suchness. And then the question of death that she mentions, uh, and the brittleness of the world. This is one of the supreme themes of the Quran, that always mentions how brittle the world is, how transient and passing it is, and how important it is to remember death. He who remembers death seriously shall never die. My countryman Jalaluddin Rumi is now very famous in this country for the wrong reasons. Fortunately, everything becomes popularized, also becomes deformed somewhat, but in a very famous poem he says, die before you die, so that when you die, you shall not die and go into the grave, but go into the world of light. If I can just translate this Persian poem very quickly. So this point also confirms this remarkable uh, deep similitude between the various attitudes in various religions, depending who attract, is attracted to what, by the particularity of a soul or her soul, but nevertheless, the fundamental elements. And then to reach a point which is the center, which is beyond all the change and transience, which could in a sense control her extreme energy, which means externalization. Our soul has a tendency to externalize itself, and it needs to come back into itself every once in a while. All of the spiritual practice which I perform, meditations, invocation, all the methods in contrast to Western Judaism and Christianity, Islam never lost its techniques and meditation, its spiritual techniques, which are as rich as those of Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, which someone like myself has been practicing ever since he was a young person. Now, uh, this is partly to respond to what she says from the Islamic point of view. And I want to add one more point. I believe that a human being, more than being defined by the Aristotelian rational animal, can be defined as a being in quest of meaning. We can live without many things. We cannot live without meaning. Now, I was born as a Muslim, I was born in a family of scholars, but I had to rediscover Islam myself. I went to a prep school only a few miles from here, exactly 50 years ago I graduated the valedictorian at Pedi, and was supposed to come here to this university, I decided to go to MIT instead. 
I'd visit this university many, many times. There are times when I was a young man in a spiritual crisis, like many people would be at that age. And I went through all of the world religions and philosophies and studied years and years of Hinduism, of Taoism, of Christianity. I met many eminent Christian teachers, Etienne Gilson, Maritain, people whom Mr. Buckley knows very well. And I, I rediscovered, not only through family heritage, but through and in a sense, intellectual participation and regaining a faith of what the Islamic tradition was and provided for me meaning. There's nothing I've experienced in my life since this transformation came upon me when I was 20 years old, which has not made sense to me. And I've never had an experience of discourse with eminent people in other religions, with the Jagat Guru of Kanchipuram, <coughs> whom I met in 1972 when I first made to Waiminga Madras, to great Christian saintly figures, Padre Pio in Italy, all kinds of incredible people I've had the opportunity to meet in my life, whose experience and description of God was outside of what I had experienced and believed the divine to be. And that is why I asked Mr. Buckley, I believe that the temptation that Christ speaks about is not a temptation of other gods, except if the other gods are false gods. It's the temptation precisely of placing the falsehood in place of the truth. And this brings me to the last point that I want to mention in this context. Pluralism is meaningless to discuss unless we discuss the other element that is present that Havel already pointed to, that is secularism or the distrust of religion or the negation of religious truth. This is what makes religious pluralism in America different from that of India, let's say in the 14th century, when you had Hindus and Buddhists and Jain and Muslims, the Buddhists had not been expelled yet, and small Christian and Jewish community, practically with as much diversity as America today. The element that has been added is not that the other various religions around, but there's a worldview which negates the very reality of religion at its base. And that, I believe, is a much greater challenge than finding the truth in other various religions spoken in different languages. I, two, or three, two or three questions suggest themselves. I, I return to Mr. Buckley's question about the seduct seductiveness of other gods because I have wrestled with that. I grew up believing I am the way, the truth, and the life, as Jesus said. But one of my mentors pointed out that if you took recorded human history as an obelisk, Cleopatra's needle, Christianity would be at the point, at the, at, at the very point of that long uh, obelisk. There was a lot of history before it. At the same time that Jesus was saying to his listeners, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there were something like 800, 900 million other people on the face of the earth. That if you, I, I'm not seduced by the notion of other gods. My God is right for me. Uh, it, it, my God is not too small, but I, but I realize if I believed in a God who only was right for me, I would be believing in a God who is a, not an equal in opportunity parent. And that I don't believe God would have only revealed God at one point on the obelisk, at the top of the obelisk, to a group of people living only in one place. Therefore, while that story I fit into, it's not the only story that others fit into. That's where I come out of. I'm not seduced. So you don't believe in the incarnation. Pardon me? You don't believe in the incarnation. Yes, I do believe, but I don't believe it was an exclusive incarnation. He asked if I believed in the incarnation of God in Christ. I do, for me and for other Christians. I know I've heard them talk about it. But do I think that 
someone else living in the time of Jesus was not invited into the realm of mystery and glory and, 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 and salvation? No, I don't believe that. Do well, you? What, I, I have never thought to challenge God's timetable. It seems to me that if he chose <clears throat> for B.C. to be born, uh, it's, um, it's a decision made for whatever reason, call it mysterious. I don't think, however, that for him to have been born uh, uh, in Israel uh, rather than in uh, Louisiana is an act of discrimination against people who were then in Louisiana. But I, I gather you have trouble with this. I do. I, I, I do have to. Do you believe there is, is there more than one way to heaven? <laughs> I, I, I believe in the infinite mercy and love of God. Uh, but he, I understood him to have laid down certain rules which people who uh, accept uh, his sovereignty have to live by. Now how he punishes those who don't live according to those rules is another question then how does he deal with the invincibly ignorant the invincibly ignorant who have never heard about God any God though most most cultures of course make 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 up their own hmm. but yeah. I think it's, it's a it's an interesting 20th century application of um, PC correctness that uh, God had absolutely no right to appear at any one place without giving equal notice to every other place simultaneously. I'm not challenging God's right, Mr. Buckley. I'm only challenging my capacity to know how God would reveal himself or to, to, to it, it other, other times. Mr. Reverend Ford. Yeah, this, this business about getting to heaven, I really think that it would be an interesting conversation as to what we think heaven is in terms of the various traditions but for the time being assuming that it's the great place one negro spiritual said you know there are 12 gates to this city which was a way of at least opening up that maybe i might enter one and somebody else might enter the other my belief is that if you listen to most religious groups most people who describe their faith would say that the deity that they worship is likely to receive the Academy Awards in the great celebration in the sky. I think that if Jesus, and I'm a Christian, and for me, I think Jesus is really going to get the Oscar, but when Jesus accepts it, I have the feeling that Jesus is going to say, for what I was trying to do on the earth and the agenda of building community, I will not accept this award alone but I would invite those who share with me in the work of liberation to share in the honor of this hour. Now how the razzle-dazzle of God's infinite mercy therefore says all that I taught you pedagogically about nobody could get in unless they named the name of Christ, bent the knee to Christ. The impulse in the Christian faith represented by he descended into hell means that in God's infinite mercy there will be a way in which God's children who did not name the name of Christ will experience the eternity of God's love. How that gets worked out 
as a Christian using Christian gospel documents is a problem. But I'd rather live with the problem and the impulse that it get works out. I think there's an important issue that uh, has to be mentioned. To grapple with the reality of other religions is not part of ordinary human experience. God had not made us to live on two different planets at the same time. That I accept. It's a peculiar challenge of our times and perhaps the most difficult challenge of our times. But it also must be said that this is particularly difficult for Christianity. It is more difficult, I believe, for Christianity than it is for most other religions. At least through the many years of dialogue and discourse I've had with leading both Protestant and Catholic theologians, this is to be felt. And I want to give you a concrete example of it, which is a very sad example, but which has to be given. Right now we're witnessing one of the most difficult and saddest tragic days in the history of Europe in the last 50 years. Every day on CNN it is said that the old monasteries of the Orthodox, Christian Orthodox Serbs were in, are in Kosovo and so they cannot give it up. But that land was for 600 years part of the Ottoman Empire. And there was plenty of time to destroy all of these monasteries. They were not, because from the Islamic point of view, from Islamic law, they had to protect the churches of the Christians and Jews and other people of the book. But within six months that the Serbians took over part of Bosnia, they destroyed every single uh, old mosque and Sufi center and library they could get hold of. Now, this might be said, this is not the fall of Christianity, the fall of the Serbs, as Mr. Bobby was said, I agree with him, that it's not the fall of Christianity. But the idea of the exclusivism of the incarnation, that is a one single incarnation, which in fact excludes everything else, creates a theological problem which is more difficult for contemporary Christian theologians to overcome than similar problems, I think, are for Hindus, Buddhists, Confucians, Jews, and others. I've talked to many Jewish rabbis. This is an issue, I think, which should be brought out. And I have the deep feeling for Christian theology. I understand how difficult it is. But as James just said so beautifully, it is better to have the problem and understanding its depth than to reject it out of hand. You have no choice. You have no choice. Do I mean? Uh, very much returning to uh, James' point, I think the intriguing phenomena to the 21st century is the possibility of dual, even multiple membership in religious practices and religious traditions. The dialogue between Christianity and Buddhism has generated the possibility of an interplay. Uh, John Cobb asked the question, can a Buddhist be a Christian or can a Christian be a Buddhist? For me, from the Confucian point of view, in all kinds of ethical religious dialogues, I find the word Confucian can even be used as an adjective. A Confucian Catholic, a Confucian Buddhist, a Confucian Muslim. What does that mean? It means that a person who is politically concerned, socially engaged, and culturally sensitive and informed, who is a Christian, but interested not simply in the kingdom of God yet to come, not simply interested in an exclusive claim to truth, but interested in the perennial problems of the world today, ecological issues, distributive justice, and all these major uh, religious pluralistic concerns. And for a Muslim who is interested in the transformation of the world, 
interested in justice, interested in these uh, pragmatic issues, will have to respond to some of the very powerful, I would say, spiritual challenges of the 21st century. The question of ecology, question of uh, disintegration of uh, not just the global community, but any community, from the family to the nation. And the question of distributive justice, the question of coexistence of many different faiths, many different paths. Now the world has now become a global village, but the global village is not integrated. It's much more discriminatory, much more conflictual and contradictory. All the major religious traditions, when they emerge, they emerge from very complicated situations. But the complexity of the modern world is such that no religion with a historical background, 2,000 years or 3,000 years, will have all the resources to be able to deal with that problem alone, with no other resources that could be generated. Therefore, religious dialogue, communication, and opening up to new possibilities, the sense of humanity and also the sense of compassion, now become very, very central. For example, in 1989, a small group of us, eight of us, and had the great privilege of having dinner with uh, His Holiness, uh, the Pope. And we suggested very humbly the possibility of uh, encyclical on the sanctity of the earth. Simply to say, from the Catholic point of view, the earth is to be sanctified in the sense that we have only this earth. And no matter what, we shouldn't pollute it and shouldn't do it. He's deeply moved. He just came back from Africa and very, very moved by that statement. But the Christmas, uh, uh, Christmas talk and sermon was all about the, uh, the beauty of the earth and the importance of the earth. But the encyclical has never come. Part of the reason is because there are theoretic, uh, theological and theoretical controversies concerning this issue. Now, the Buddhists will have to confront with the question, samsara, which is that red dirt, but the samsara is now the other shore. The transformation of the samsara here and now becomes a major Buddhist commitment. And this is from the Confucian point of view, it's not the utopia in the past, it is the world here and now. So I think in our dialogue, a conversation focused on uh, faith, uh, spirit, and mind, but one of the deep questions is the body the question of the body. And the body is no longer something that we own. The body is something that we become. It's an attainment. Not just the body like this physical body, but the body of, uh, of the community, the body of the nation, the, the, even the body politic, of the body of the globe. And all these will have to be infused by very powerful spiritual forces for transformation. Otherwise, we are in really deep trouble. You provoked a two-pronged question, and then we'll go to questions from the floor. And the first prong is, is, is this. Robert Worthrow, who's a distinguished uh, American sociologist, historian of religion, in a new book says that there is a powerful yearning and searching for spirituality, and he, that's his word, that goes beyond religion goes beyond the traditional forms incarnations of religion and I'm wondering what each or any of you think about that can you separate the search for spiritual experience from the religious order and does it does, does that search and what you're talking about Wei Ming 
lead to the possibility of a universal consciousness that we have not yet plumbed? I do not believe there is any possibility of authentic spirituality out of the channel, outside of the channels chosen by God for us. You do not what? I do not believe that there is any possibility of any authentic spirituality outside of the channels chosen by God for us, which means the major world religions. However, what has happened is that in contrast to the Eastern religions, in the West, as a result of the experience of four centuries of secularism, the mystical, esoteric, inward dimension of Christianity and Western Judaism became eclipsed. And therefore, many people think that spirituality is other than religion because they identify religion only with either social action, social justice at best, or with some kind of sentimentality. If you had Christianity around today with people like St. John of the Cross or Meister Eckhart living downtown somewhere, then this question would not even have come up. In my own tradition, the Islamic tradition, this is a meaningless question. Spirituality is to be found in Sufism, in the inner prayers, in the meditations, in the Sufi poetry, in the music, and so forth and so on. But since this is absent from the formal aspect of religion today in the West, many people are trying to invent their own spirituality. I believe that might make some people very wealthy by bringing out CDs of Jalaluddin Rumi sung by actresses, but it's not going to spread authentic spirituality. Let me, let me suggest another approach within the framework of Christianity. Within the Gospel of John, Jesus, upon his departure or getting ready to go, says to his disciples, there are many things I have to say to you, but you cannot receive them now. However, when the spirit of truth has come, he will lead you into further truth in some way. This says to me that there must always be a distinction between the things which have been said specifically within our faith and the other things that I cannot say to you now, which if I said it and your experience had not awakened an interrogative about it, then the answer would not have had meaning. So I have to think that most of our religions have what we would call the prescribed rubrics of faith, but there is a spirit not yet domesticated by our theological categories that respond to a spirit in us not yet firmly articulated. And I would want to always give respect for the particularity of my path, but my path is too narrow if it does not provide a way for my spirit to be moved beyond linguistics and conceptualization. And I noticed that the theme about spirit is a part of this theme. I think that in terms of interfaith relationships, that the spirit is much more like a Pentecostal that speaks in tongues, not yet understood by the language of faith of other traditions. And that's a very important prospect for our life together. Mr. Buckley, Rabbi Gellard, and Joan Halifax. It, 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 seems, it seems to me, Mr. Moyers and, uh, and uh, Dr. Forbes, that uh, I, I think you, we're, some of you are imposing on yourselves uh, uh, problems which, uh, uh, which ought to be axiomatically uh, uh, ax, uh, uh, understood. The, the idea of having a more fulfilling experience than religion has the effect of 
saying to religion that it can't be infinitely fulfilling. Now, whatever what, what synesthesia people are talking about that will tickle all of our senses uh, uh, simultaneously is, I think, best, uh, best uh, accepted uh, in, in the, broadly speaking, in the catechism of, uh, of Christianity. And uh, there, are, there are mysteries in, as has as, uh, as, as, as been suggested, there are, in the Christian faith, which we can seek to understand provided we go into that adventure knowing that we almost certainly will not understand that they will remain mysteries. My, my son emailed me this morning. Uh, he said the chicken, see if I get this right, the chicken and the egg after centuries of um, a, a contest finally decided to go to sleep together and find out. So the next morning, the chicken at 8 o'clock in the morning has a cigarette in his mouth. He said, now we know. So do we know? But the mystery is accepted, isn't it? And I think its acceptability uh, is is a part of. The, uh, you 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 said that uh, better than I could. Is is a part of the whole Christian endowment. Rabbi Geller. I'm from Los Angeles, Hollywood. Spirituality is very big news. A lot of movie stars are searching for spirituality. It seems to me that um, people are looking for quick fixes. From my tradition, spirituality means seeking the face of God and then creating a life that is lived appropriate to the presence of God. So the seeking part sometimes seems like it's easy, but the hard part is the discipline of creating a life where you can really live as though you are in connection with the holiness of God. It seems to me that that is ultimately what spirituality is about. It has a great deal to do with community. In my tradition, it, it, it stems from the belief that all human beings are created in the image of God, and therefore we have to treat other people as though they really were created in the image of God. And even more than that, we have to build a world where people can live as though they're created in the image of God. That is ultimately what spirituality is about. So there are no quick fixes. Joan Halifax. I look on religion in a certain way as a noun that is constantly evolving, and spirituality as a verb that is beyond language. And what I mean by that is, and I think it's very much in the spirit about which you were speaking, I think it's very difficult for us to separate, in fact, impossible, spirituality and religion, per se, from the deepest perspective, just as you cannot separate the noun and the verb. They are interconnected, just as the relative and the absolute are interconnected. You could say that spirituality is like the perfume, in a certain way, of a flower, and you can't say uh, the flower is separate from the perfume. But there is an interesting flavor of uh, distinction that I think is important. I think that our religions are about our communities. Are about what? Our communities. They are the kind of integument that makes it possible for us to sit down together and to share a meal in peace. They are a way for us to build stories about the past, about the present, and the future. They are the source of mythology. They are, uh, it is a context, religion per se is a context for a kind of the coordination, if you will, of our lives within the setting of the community 
and family. But I feel from my own experience that spirituality is a very private and a very intimate experience. It is not something that you can commodify, like a Rumi, you don't want to commodify Rumi. Uh, it immediately trivializes the essence of what is spiritual. It is, I use the word intimacy often because it is at that level that we are called to really, why I say spirituality is the verb. It is, in a way, not you and me, but it's what is between us. But it is what it, between you and me. But what does it say to you that in the founding document of Mr. Buckley's faith and my faith and Professor Nazar's faith and, uh, and Rabbi Geller's faith, the first murder grew out of a religious act. Uh, Cain and Abel were brothers, but they were rivals for God's favor. And very quickly, the relationship between them degenerated into violence in response to the search for God. What does that say to you? Well, it, it does say a lot to me, actually, as I'm sure it does to everyone. I mean, more murders have been committed on this earth in the name of religion than in anything else, including, you know, some real estate deal. I mean, religion is in, for example, Thich Nhat Hanh in the Tiepian Order, uh, the first precept you take is do not be bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. In this way, then, what is it about the different way we express our religions that fosters spirit? And that is what my concern is. When I said to Mr. Buckley, whom I believe is a very kind man, but as, Mr., uh, the, as the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. How do we, how are we with this earth, with each other, and with ourselves? This is the living truth, in, in my experience. That is really where the rubber, if you will, meets the road, in the vector of kindness. Do we mean? I think it is true there are many contested narratives. And all the major master narratives, whether of the Christian tradition or the Confucian tradition, uh, have been deconstructed. But yet, in, uh, in this uh, generation of ours, a new master narrative re-emerged, uh, partly because of uh, scientific, uh, scientific development. For the first time, we managed to see the Earth from a different perspective. So we, for the first time, we see something. And this is the beginning of a new master narrative. Everybody shares. All the religious traditions will have to share this particular narrative. Therefore, the question of creation, whether of evolutionary process or of creationism, this is a dynamic transformation of creative forces all over. And we would like to see that continue. And our meaning of life is linked to this particular globe. And I think the, uh, the African proverb that the earth is not something bequeathed to us by our ancestors, but it's something that is put in our trust as a precious uh, uh, being by future generations. That sense, I think, gives us a, if the religion or spirituality is quest for meaning, that is a focal point for meaningfulness. Now that links then to the question of how community can be understood not simply as parochial communities. They are important because we're embedded in them. They have to go beyond parochial communities to embrace many other forms of communities, eventually the global community as a whole. Now that imagination, if it is lost, 
then I think all forms of spirituality, no matter how powerful in their individual religious traditions, may become impoverished in terms of not just the survival or flourishing of the human community as a whole. So one possibility to imagine is each spiritual tradition has its own uh, embeddedness, but it has its own possibility of a source of inspiration which flows beyond that embeddedness, like digging a well. You dig deeply into the well, and your well will reach the life water that will flow to other wells, and there will be a communication. The idea of God as a transcendent power informs the communicability at that level. If we become exclusive, we in fact deny our ability to sink into the ground of our life force and our spirituality. Dr. Forbes, and then I would like in our remaining few minutes just to get a couple of questions from you. You've seen what it's like to have six apostles. Imagine if you had 12. Uh, Your question about Cain and Abel is essential, I think, insight for this conversation. From Reinhold Niebuhr, there was the notion somewhere that said, at the heart of human sinfulness is our unwillingness to accept the security which God offers. That's a fundamental human problem, thereby allowing us, in the absence of sufficient security, to set about to establish religious traditions with concepts that are more secure and comforting to us. So it seems to me that a major, that the largest issue in America today is what I call insecurity-itis. Everybody is sufficiently insecure that they seek an island of safety and they hedge it in with religious dogmas. And I think that Cain's problem was he did not know that just because Abel was affirmed, that that did not mean that in some sense he could be affirmed, even if there might need to be a change in that which he offered. And so I see religious groups reenacting the Cain and Abel story of assuming that I can't be a good Christian and have God say something positive about Buddhists or say something positive about Jews or to say something positive about a Confucianist. That God can celebrate that and I don't need to kill him for fear that if he gets celebrated, that is going to take away from me the opportunity to have my life both secure and affirmed. I think we all, I think the impulse to relativize and downplay the significance of the other is a mechanism of attempting to cope with our fundamental insecurity. That's what I think it is. Where did a homicide get into the act? What's the question? Credit. Where did a homicide get into the act? We, in, the, in the first... He, he just provided that Mr. Asa would not get killed, and I didn't know anybody was threatening to kill him. <laughs> Were you? Well, doesn't it seem to you that the thread of religiously spilled blood runs from east of Eden, Adam, Cain and Abel, to... Beirut, Belfast, the Balkans, I mean, you don't deny that in the name of God people killed. Not at all. Uh, a while ago I said Christianity has a very bloody history. Uh, one's, one's passionate devotion to God 
can be misunderstood to suggest that one wants to kill people who, uh, who don't share your faith. But I've heard nobody suggest tonight that this is about to happen or is being encouraged. Uh, you didn't encourage that, did you? I think this is a, actually a misunderstanding. First of all, to, come, to ask the question you asked the story of Cain and Abel, the answer was given by Christ. When he said, do not call me good, it's my Father in heaven who is good. That is, absolute goodness belongs to God alone. Cain and Abel already represent human history in this world. The world of division. Again, to quote a poem of Rumi, he said, when colorlessness, which means in a sense, Trinata, formlessness, fed into the world of colors, then Moses and Pharaoh began to confront each other. That is, you cannot have a world of duality without confrontation. That's an impossibility. That's the condition of this world. The reason it was always related to religion is because religion was always the most important element to identify people as who they were. In the 20th century, which has been the least religious century in human history, we've killed more people than any other uh, century in the world. Hitler and Stalin and the Western powers that together were killed 50 million people did not kill in the name of Christ or uh, Confucius or uh, Shintoism even in Japan. So it's not the question of religion spilling blood. It's that human beings until the 20th century always identified themselves more than anything else with religion, and many people still do. And it's that identification, compartmentalization, separation, division, which then leads to, confront, to struggles of various kinds. Today, we no longer kill for religion. We kill for markets, for ideology, for other things. But all of these are elements which identify people. If you look, really look at the instruction of various religions of the world, whether it's Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, those religions which withdrew from the world like Buddhism and Christianity or those which came into the world like Judaism, Hinduism and Islam, you will all realize that the instruction was exactly what Mr. Buckley said, which I will say about myself, you should look at me if I were not to be Muslim. That is, it was not those religions which made people do these, it's those religions which tried to prevent these forces within us from playing, it, playing itself out like that and killing each other. No religion has said that murder is a virtue. No religion has said that. Uh, but at least we put some conditions on it. You should not, let's say, in battle kill children and women. Whereas we put all these things aside, now we don't kill in the name of religion, but we throw bombs down on heads of people and kills everybody altogether. So I think this whole contention is totally false. We've mistaken religion as a force with the role that it has always played in identifying us as to who we are. And it's the second role which has caused so much death to be carried out in the name of religion. There must be 750, uh, there, must, there, there are 750 uh, people who would like to participate in this discussion, and I'm sorry that we can't include you, but I wonder if in the last 12 minutes we have questions, if you have some questions to put either to an individual or to the group. There are some microphones scattered around. We will finish at 6 o'clock. Let's start right here in the front. If just one minute, and the, uh, you'll be given a microphone so everyone can hear you. Uh, you asked for a question, Mr. Morris. I wonder if it's possible to separate religious practice from theology in discussions like this. I think it would be very practical. I personally decided years ago that they should be separated. It makes it a lot easier for civilians to get along in the world. And uh, Ms. Halifax just a few minutes ago referred to 
religion as a community phenomenon, and it's been hinted or said that way today several times by other people. Um, so the question is, can we separate theology from religious practice? Would one of you like to respond to that, or any of you like to respond to that? Just, just very, just very quickly. I, I think, in principle, I agree with you. It can be separate, and properly, in some sense, ought to be separate. But now we know this new age phenomena that uh, spiritual disciplines now become commodified as uh, psychological technology, totally separate from ethical religious commitments, that lead to a new kind of fashion which uh, is falsify and trivialize spirituality, which is extremely dangerous. But it is very important to say to be religious is not necessarily to be committed to a particular theo theological doctrine. It is related to praxis, to a way of life. So in that sense, the religious practice is separable from the, the doctrine that may constrain a religion into one exclusive path. There's a question behind you. If you'd pass the microphone, sir. Thank you. I wonder if some members of the panel could comment on the other story from the same book that has the story of Cain and Abel. That's the story of diversity, um, the Tower of Babel. It seems to me it's an interesting story for our purposes because it's a story about the people of the earth in an early age of the earth seeking a unified path to heaven, but seeking it in such a proud, knowing spirit that God decides, okay, if you're going to do it the straight way, the unified way uh, in this proud, knowing spirit, we are going to do it the hard way. We're going to scatter you and give you different languages, make you unintelligible to one another. We're going to go the long way around to building a tower to heaven or building a way to heaven. It does seem to me to be an extremely interesting story because it's still a story of one God. It's a story about diversity. And it's also a story that poses a problem for all subsequent revelations as to whether those revelations are to be considered as revelations within each of the separate tongues or whether they're to be considered revelations that help us to redeem the diversity created at Babel. I mean, I guess the story of the Christian story of the Pentecost presents itself as a way whereby people could now talk and be heard by each man in his own language, which is an interesting claim in relation. James Forbes, would you like to interpret the story of Babel? Ha! <laughs> ah. The power that is given to us to build tempts us when we have achieved the great monument to blur the difference between creature and creator. Anybody who gets a chance to build that high rise will block the sunlight from others ultimately so that it becomes necessary to have us brought back down when we have built empires. That faces religion. Religion that triumphs in its conceptualization, monumental theological systems, must be brought back down. Otherwise, the creator of the monument ultimately becomes the one who is worshipped within the tradition. Pentecost reminds us that it is only by the power of the God who has made us all that we can ultimately learn how not to build monuments but rely upon the language of us all. Pentecost then suggests to me that all our stories, if they are stories of authenticity, are a part of the truth that God would have revealed in our time. 
if I get the mic and keep it all the time, I tell only my story. Pentecost insists that we spread the opportunity and get the megaphone scattered from place to place. Rabbi. The um, Midrash, Rabbinic Commentary, on the story of the Tower of Babel suggests that the problem in the building of the tower is that people were so anxious to build the tower that they didn't care about each other, and they would push each other off as they were trying to make it higher and higher. That along the way, if we forget that the ultimate religious act is being kind to each other, then we don't deserve to build. And I think that brings us back to the Cain and Abel story. The, the, you know, the final line of that story is, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer, although it's never given, is clearly, yes, you're supposed to be your brother's keeper. That's what we're meant to learn from perhaps both of those stories. Question. We're almost finished. All right, let me, I see Professor Gutman coming up. Let me just uh, close by my, our part of it by expressing my appreciation to you and to our participants. Mr. Buckley once wrote that if you mentioned God once at a dinner party in New York, you would be greeted with silence. If you mentioned God twice, you'd never be invited back to dinner. Uh, I, I found that to be the case in New York, but I think I, I, I think, Mr. Rockefeller, that it will never be said after this afternoon that you can't mention God at Princeton and, and not come back. I also want to close by saying I think all of you, each of you, will go to heaven, but I'm not the one to open the door. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.